1: Hi, I'm Jerry Boyer. Thank you for joining us for Meeting of Minds podcast. Our guest today is Rick Graber. He's the CEO of the Lined and, Brad- and Harry Bradley Foundation. He's also the chairman of the Philanthropy Roundtable. We're going to talk about a lot of things, Lord willing, but one thing that really caught my eye was an article that he did recently for Real Clear Markets, Philanthropic Wokeism Undermines Free Market Principles. Uh, Rick, uh, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Well thanks very much, Jerry. Great to be with you. Uh
1: and thank you for writing this article. Um I think that you you made a, a point, uh, at least in your interview with Rob Bluey, um, which is that conservatives are way behind in terms of engagement with the boardrooms. We've been fighting in politics, maybe in culture to some degree, but in essence it looks like the secular utopian left, now summed up as woke, um has essentially had its way in the boardroom, almost entirely unimposed, except for a guy named Justin Danoff, like one guy who's, showing up, you know, two, great
2: work. 199
1: right. lefties and Justin <laughs> at a meeting, um, and that we've been sort of behind on this. We've got some catching up to do.
2: Oh, we do. Uh, I mean, Jerry, I'm a, a corporate lawyer by training, and I had always been told and taught that uh, the responsibility of management of a corporation and the responsibility of a board uh, was to the shareholders uh, and only the shareholders. And uh, the, their job was to uh, uh, manage a really good company that made money and, and produced results for the shareholders. Uh, and and that has just drifted uh, in very troubling ways in, in recent years. And maybe some would argue that this has been going on for a long time. Uh, but it, it seems to be a, a big distraction for boards and CEOs and senior level managers to have multiple stakeholders, and that's, that's what's happening. Uh, and even some institutions that uh, have been around for a lot of years and have been friendly towards uh, our way of thinking on this, um, Milton Friedman's way of thinking on this, Ah, uh, places like the United States Chamber of Commerce, places like the Business Roundtable out of Washington D.C., are all buying into this multiple stakeholder theory that that I think can undermine the effectiveness of businesses in this country. I think it can produce some negative results for people that uh, hold pension funds, for instance. Uh, and and it's something that uh, we've got to fight back on. And you're right, we're way behind. And Justin has been a lone warrior on this. There are others now. Uh, who understand that this is a problem? Hopefully, it's not too late to the table. Uh, but we we've got a lot of work to do, a lot so, of work. And frankly, I you know I don't need a CEO to tell me how to think or how to live my life. Right, right. And that's what's going on.
1: We we send out something to all of the holdings. I'm involved with money management. That's my day job. Um, but I've been attending annual meetings like like crazy this year. And we sent something out Good to, to all of our holdings, which is 313 companies um, that uh, we have substantial stakes in that we have contact information for. There's 330 companies. So some of them are uncontactable. What does that tell you about their orientation? And uh, basically put together a set of principles. And to sum it up, it is that American corporations are the arm that this is going back to Plato or Corinthians, that a society is also like a body and there's different organs that have different functions. You're the arm that turns the dynamo, not the mouth that preaches to the rest of us. Um, and it's interesting to see the reaction from different companies to that. Some didn't want to hear it. Uh, some were like, finally, we're hearing from from shareholders who want us to do our day job and are trying to pull yeah. us off into something else. Um, but... I'm curious. When you were at Honeywell, how much of this was co- incoming at you back then? Because it's it's at high peak now, but maybe it wasn't so strong then. Were you starting to see it?
2: Oh, there was some of that. Uh, you may be familiar with the Alec organization, uh, uh, which is an an association of primarily of state legislators and that that tends to be conservative. There was always an attack uh, on uh, Alec during my days at Honeywell. Hmm. Uh, always went to the CEO, always ended up on my desk. I was responsible for global government relations for Honeywell, and, and we were able to fight it off. So it was beginning uh, to happen, but I don't think nearly as as intense it is, as it is now. You know, you see what uh, Delta Airlines uh, did with the Georgia voting election law. You saw what uh, Major League Baseball did, what Coca-Cola did. Uh, none of that, I don't think, would have happened Um, during my days at Honeywell. It it wasn't that extreme. Uh, And and, and those are three good examples of, of CEOs who have just gone totally off the rails.
1: Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. It's it's interesting. I'm seeing a lot of things on the ballot, on the proxies, that are about um, uh, transparency. Um, regarding lobbying dollars and contributions to trade associations um, and advocacy organizations. And it is a transparent attempt to go after ALEC or to the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Um, it's yes. basically, you, you said something vaguely green, CEO. Now we're going to make you reveal that you gave money to Alec which is a climate denier or CEI climate denier um and uh, or vote suppressor and then we're going to publicly embarrass you about it to defund the right um and it's interesting management is fighting these things but you know they kind of they kind of let the the camel's nose in the tent when they made statements about shareholder capitalism i mean essentially they made kind of gestures and they said some things that they thought would cause the left-wing activists to go away and the activists come back and say oh that's just a promise that you made now that's like a blank check that you wrote for us to come back to you over and over and over again and force you to live up to that or to or we publicly embarrass you and browbeat you into it
2: no you're exactly right it's uh uh, i mean the 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 instinct i think of of many corporations you're right is to just make it go away what 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 little can we do to kind of get through this uh, this little fire that we have to put out uh, at least until next year uh, and I think that's kind of been the mentality. Um, it's particularly true, of course, in publicly traded corporations right. I, I think it is less true in privately held businesses where you, you don't have the huge shareholder base or the institutional investors uh, and and maybe that's a place that uh, free market proponents such as us uh, should be turning to for a, a louder voice coming out of the business community.
1: You're talking about private equity or you or you or well,
2: privately a, held businesses as opposed to, to public. Yes. All right. Yes.
1: So, wh- but why not public? I mean, we've barely shown up and we've lost. We've forfeited the game. Why not show up? Well, I don't
2: think and- we should give up. Okay, I'm, got it. Abso- right. Absolutely. I'm right. not saying give up, but I'm saying if we, we want some additional voices to be heard on this topic, yeah. that that some of the large privately held businesses, most businesses in this country are privately held, and most people... Right believe in free markets and believe what what uh, is is possible in this country.
1: I think one of the problems with some of these CEOs especially the large tech companies is they're publicly traded but they think like they're still privately owned. They still yes. you know they yes. still think of Starbucks or Apple or whatever is sort of like a privately held corporation that can do whatever it wants um, politically rather than be accountable to shareholders.
2: Yes. Yes. And and on the shareholder questions you're right that that we all see on all the proxy statements management suggest voting no uh but how strongly do they do that how much of a public campaign do they conduct on those kinds of things not very much again it's get rid of the problem and hope it goes away at least until next year
1: and a lot of times they said yes in a negotiation and therefore it never appeared on the proxy they surrendered before the vote um, yes. What will it take to, to, for you to get this off of your off of the proxy? And so, as you sow or some other group says, we'll just do this, this, and this, and promise it, and then we'll re- withdraw the proxy. So the fact that it's not there wasn't a vote means they won before the vote, which is well,
2: pretty discouraging. You're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah.
1: Let me make another observation. You mentioned large publicly traded. What I'm finding is small and mid that we can make a lot more headway there. I agree. You know, they're, they're, I agree. they I think they tend they're to be Midwestern or Southern. They're not as big. They're not as, they haven't been captured yet. And they they resent this pressure. So that might be one of the zones. Like I, I don't, you know, I fought, you know, we owned Apple and I talked to them, but I didn't expect to win. But if you talk to a Midwestern lumber company, you can actually expect to influence the debate with smaller mid cap and kind of almost inoculate them to say when the utopians knock on your door, understand that the silent majority is with you. Don't give in.
2: Yes, absolutely. Our founders would be spinning. uh, The the founders of our foundation, two brothers from Milwaukee, Lyndon, Harry Bradley, who created an amazing company in in Milwaukee called the Allen Bradley Company. And they believed so dearly in free markets and limited government and get government out of the way and, and let me try and I might fail. But Uh, If I keep working at this, I'm going to succeed. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, And and you're right. I I think most people in business think that way. And and most people are not these big tech guys that uh, are are doing what they're doing to us. So
1: why is it that the money of Henry Ford, David Rockefeller, Andrew Mellon, to use a local example, I'm here in Western Pennsylvania, um, that that is essentially... Fighting against everything that those men believed in, so that's quest part one. And why is it that, say, the money that the Bradley brothers generated is not? And I can also mention Scaife. There's I mean, there's other. They haven't all been professionalized no, into leftism. So what? Right. What's the difference? Why does it happen sometimes and not others? Do you have any thoughts about that?
2: Well, I mean, it's a serious question of donor intent. I, I doubt if Henry Ford would approve of uh, what's going on with the Ford Foundation. Uh, these days it it really does come down to the governance of a foundation Uh, bradley in in theory is a foundation forever perpetual Uh, bradley has stayed true to its mission for its third now 36 years uh, of existence Uh, and it's because our board of directors takes succession very very seriously and every single time that there is a vacancy and it doesn't happen often but when it does all 11 directors are engaged to make sure that whoever is taking that vacant seat uh, is aligned with what the brothers would have wanted uh, had they been still been at the table. So there's a, on,
1: there's a focus on philosophical succession.
2: Absolutely. And, Absolutely. If, and
1: board oversight.
2: Absolutely. I mean, we are, we're stewards of, of this incredible gift hmm. uh, that, that the Bradley brothers created through the creation of the Allen Bradley company. And it is our job. It is it's my job. It's every staff member here at Bradley's job. It's every director's job to make sure that we're doing our very best to do what they would have done were they still with us.
1: Was and Saint, they've been gone a long time. What does St. Paul say to the Corinthians? First of all, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Yes. And um, it seems to yes. me that. And go
2: ahead. Some, and, and you're right. Some foundations have stayed true, sadly. Uh, many maybe even most have not
1: um uh, just going back in my own life a long time ago i was running a think tank so i was dealing with foundations and um mo- mostly with the scafe foundations but with some others sure. but uh, we were up against some of the establishment foundations on the other side of an issue so there were conversations and what i noticed is some of the smaller foundations like second generation i was watching this happen in real time i won't mention names i don't want to call people out but right. somebody is a capitalist in the free market and they make a lot of money and they've got a big pile and then the son and the daughter or the son and the daughter or whoever they take over and what they would do is they would look at the big foundations the melons whatever and they would ask them who should we hire to be our executive director they they would they would make take staffing cues from the big guys. And I remember talking to them about it and saying, well, would your father agree with the philosophy of this person? And they'd always say, no, he wouldn't. Well, how about you? In many cases, they didn't. But they said, well, we have to professionalize The staffing, that's the cell. We're going to professionalize it, which means there's a kind of a philanthropic deep state almost. There's a profession of running foundations. And so it's a quest for status rather than philosophical succession. And then they essentially go against the wishes of the donors, like sometimes within 10, 15 years of the death of the
2: donor. Right, right. Uh, you mentioned the Philanthropy Roundtable. That's where the, the Roundtable was created in the first place, as a counter to the Council on Foundations, which is a trade association essentially of left-leaning foundations, whereas the Roundtable tends to be the more conservative foundations. Hmm. Uh, and and there is, uh, I mean, there's some wonderful organizations of the center right that uh, deal with recruiting and placement of uh, like-minded staff. So So there are resources out there to get the right people. Uh, we use them. And, and, and again, I, I, as CEO of the Bradley Foundation, I go through the same vetting process with staff that uh, our board does when, when they replace themselves on the board. And, and that's how it has to be. It has to be like that throughout the organization. And we want every single person in our organization, regardless of their position, to believe in what we're doing. Hmm. It's, so it's really it sounds important. like at
1: some point, the center-right coalition, probably through the roundtable, Created an alternate feeder system.
2: Yes. for I, I think that's true.
1: For foundations and professionals, you know, for foundations, yes. right? Yes. Um, that's yes. Yeah. And the
2: Bradley Foundation, years ago, long before my time here, was very involved in that, as was the Olin Foundation and, mm. and some others.
1: Olin Foundation. Yes, exactly. Um, so, you know, one of my dreams here is okay, that's great. There's a feeder system for that. We need yeah. an alternate feeder system for members of boards of directors of publicly traded companies. Even sure even if we wanted to elect the right people, they're not on the ballot, they're not trained, there isn't any system. I mean, there there are feeder systems, but by the time you be, you're you on the list of this person is, you know, sort of board ready, they've been completely ideologically indoctrinated.
2: Yes, yes. And some of the, we talked about, I just talked about the recruiting Firms that are out there at, in foundation world and not-for-profit world, right. uh, we we need some more of those recruiting firms and at, at the board level. Yeah, for, uh, for, for, for publicly for traded companies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So absolutely.
1: so put that on your to-do list, will you? <laughs> I'm sure it's small <laughs> Got it. enough. Got it. I mean, I'm I'm out there. I'm, like Justin's been going to these meetings. Like I'm the second guy now at these meetings. It's a Thank it's goodness. a big job, but sure it is. You know, but here's the thing. If if you have 200 people from one point of view and one person shows up from the other point of view, that is not a half percent shift in the rhetoric. That's like a 25, that's a 20 percent shift in the rhetoric. And two people show up and three people, that power dynamic changes dramatically because if you go from being not a debate to being a debate, you've made a big change.
2: Absolutely. And I'm I'm very familiar with Justin's work and I know single-handedly he has accomplished a lot. Yes, uh, in a relatively short period of time, but and it's tough work, and, and you're out there by yourself. So thank you, Jerry, for what you're doing.
1: Yeah, well, he's he's helped. I think you've supported him so indirectly. You've been helping us in the on the in the financial, you know, rather than nonprofit think tank side. He's been a great resource to us. Um, hey, uh, I want to talk a little bit about this this New Yorker piece, yeah. which you know I read it, um, and it read to me like a hatchet job of Paul Bunyan esque proportions. <laughs> um, but I'd like to get your take. I mean, essentially what it seems like they did to me is they said, here's a bunch of crazy things that QAnon people said last year. And then they kind of got the Bradley Foundation sort of mentioned in and around that group. But if, like, if you read way down to the end and you read the fine print, it turns out that the Bradley Foundation's election efforts precede the, these groups, aren't funding these crazy groups and aren't involved with these crazy groups. You just noticed that the left was trying to game election laws and you pushed against that without the conspiracy theories and the riots and all the rest of it. It seemed like they almost wanted to just get you named in, in the article, even to the point where the title was big money supports this. Even though when I read the article, I couldn't find any way that your big money was supporting um, this sort of thing.
2: No, no, it was a, a, a terribly, Misleading, inaccurate article by by Jane Meyer, which 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 is unfortunate. Really, the, what the Bradley Foundation has done and is doing is fund organizations that are trying to strengthen our election process. This is a fundamental institution in the United States of America, and it's really important that people have faith and trust in that institution. And after last year, when the way we elect People in this country change so dramatically, in part because of COVID. Mm-hmm. But you have way more mail-in ballots and absentee ballots than ever before, by a significant multiple. Uh, you, you've got this concept of ballot harvesting, where people are collecting ballots here in, in Wisconsin. It was happening in parks in the city of Madison. Uh, you've got Mark Zuckerberg dumping hundreds of millions of dollars into governments around the country, primarily in targeted Democrat strongholds in an effort to turn out the vote, mm-hmm. uh, it is very, very fair to be looking at this and to asking questions about it and to suggesting ways to strengthen that institution. So that's what the Bradley Foundation is doing. She threw out numbers about uh, how much we had funded in this effort. In in 2020, uh, we we spent half a million dollars, which is a significant amount of money, but it's far short of the $18 million that she quotes. Um, oh, you've and, given and, out a bill.
1: You've given out roughly a billion in
2: grants, over, right? Over time, since right. 1985. Okay. Uh, so yeah.
1: out, out of that billion, roughly how much has gone to um, election reform issues?
2: Oh my goodness, less than one percent.
1: Right. But that, I, I kind of eyeballed your giving patterns, and that's what it seemed like to me to be a, yes. something close to a yes. rounding error. Um,
2: so, um, and, and I'm not going to apologize for one minute. I'm, I'm proud of the work that our, our, our grantees are doing in this area and, and will continue to do in this area. Groups like the Public Interest Legal Foundation, uh, Heritage, uh, and, and several others, they're doing great work. And what they're trying to do is make this country stronger and, and to prop up an institution that people don't have as much faith in even democrats only 55% of democrats in a recent poll said that they they fully trusted uh, the election process that there's a lot of work to be done here and and this is a fair conversation and unfortunately in in today's world when you even raise questions uh you're racist or you're a white supremacist or you're trying to uh uh, suppress the vote or, or things of that sort. And that's, that's not helpful and it's not good for the country.
1: Yeah, you know, and I was a talk show host in the election of 2000 and election of 2004. And let me tell you, the left did not was perfectly willing to question election results and perfectly willing to push conspiracy theories about diebolt you know, being owned by this one—that was—I mean—they were doing their own like beautiful mind yarn connections all over the place. So, you know, everybody's got—everyone cons- has a conspiracy wing. Um, but uh, they certainly—they yeah, didn't mind undermining undermining election integrity uh, no, confidence then, did they?
2: No, I mean Hillary Clinton uh, certainly spewed that. And as far as I as far as I know, Stacey Abrams hasn't conceded her governor's race in Georgia yet.
1: <laughs> All right. So, um, so with the New Yorker piece, uh, you read that and you say, maybe I should slow down a little bit or stick to it or maybe hit the gas pedal a little more. Oh,
2: oh, oh no. Oh, no. Well, one thing about Bradley is we keep doing what we're doing and, and we're not going to stop. And Jane Meyer's article is not going to deter us in any way whatsoever. We're going to keep doing what we think is best for this country to, to preserve and protect the, the institutions of this country that are so important to all of our freedoms.
1: One of the things that you are doing, you're about to do, although as of the time of the airing, you might have just done it, is the Bradley Prize. Um, I, I, I see Amity Schles is going to get one. Um, I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of Amity. A author. Yes, yeah, she really is. So, so why... What has Amity Schley's done to win the, to earn, to merit the prestigious Bradley Prize?
2: It's a great, fun process. You know, the Bradley Prizes were created to, to be a celebration of the, the accomplishments of conservatives across the country. And every year we go through a, a very rigorous process. We have a nominating committee that submits about 200 nominations or more uh, across the country, and then a, a committee, a selection committee. That's those nominations, and then ultimately makes the recommendations to the Bradley Board of Directors, uh, and and it culminates in a wonderful ceremony in Washington D.C. at the National Building Museum uh, that that celebrates accomplishments and mm-hmm. celebrates freedom, and it, and it's great fun. And this year's winners are, are are a terrific class of winners. You mentioned Amity; she'll she'll be great. Roger Ream, who runs the Fund for American Studies, a great great organization that. Deals with, uh, students, with young people and teaching principles of free markets and, uh, limited government and um, all the principles that, that we hold dear. Just a, he's been in this, uh, game for a long, long time and is very, very well deserving of this award. And then Molly Hemingway, uh, is, is the third winner this year. Mm. Uh, and, and Molly is well known. She's a terrific, fearless journalist and uh, is doing great work. And the whole event is hosted by Kim Strassel, uh, who's outstanding in her own right. So, there's and, a a, con- and a former Bradley Prize winner.
1: I didn't know that. Uh, so there's a kind of a, uh, there's a journalistic tilt here. Um, because- depends on the year. Yeah, I see. Got it.
2: Depends on the year. Some yeah. years, yes. Some years, no. All right. It just, just depends on how the process plays out. And I never know when the process begins, how it's going to end. There are twists and turns and discussions and, uh it, it it's a hard decision but it's a very fun process and Uh, When one year's done, we go on to the next and do it again.
1: Well, when Amity was uh, about to publish the book about the Great Society, she sent me mock-ups. And I didn't do an interview at that time. And I kicked myself. It's like, now I've got a news hook again with the Bradley Prize. So I'm just going to put a star here. Good. Uh, Good. Because, you know, the book is just in time because it seems to me like we're heading into a 1970s type economic environment, which is preceded by essentially the bad economics of the late 1960s. So I think she's timely again.
2: Oh, I I absolutely agree. I mean, Johnson's Great Society has proven not to work. And it's actually one of the things that the Bradley Foundation believes in so firmly. The Bradley brothers believed in that the best way to solve problems in our society is is through people. It's not more government programs. Uh, I I look at our own community here in Milwaukee. The the best organizations that are helping people deal with uh, problems of addiction or or trying to get a good education, K through 12, are, are, are not government programs. Hmm. It, it's people that are uh, committed to their cause, that work tirelessly, anonymously, that that are truly making a difference in people's lives. And those are the groups that we fund and support.
1: That's great. I, I would also make almost a regional observation, which is that I've noticed that um, a lot of the great solutions don't come from the big cities they, I mean, I'm not I'm saying not, right. not, not even from conservatives in Washington or New York, but a lot of it is just coming from, you know, I'm thinking about some of the models that like in Indianapolis or Wisconsin that that there's you have enough leeway there to create new models, see if they work, prove them out. And then nationalize it, take it up to the top, and then it can be distributed to the rest of the country. Right. So, and and uh, I, you know, sometimes I even get cool this choice
2: started in Milwaukee. Yes, exactly. Uh, when, um, and we're we're thirty five years in, thirty years into that experiment, and still have a whole lot more to do. But today, and you spearheaded that. I mean, right? Yeah, Bradley was in the middle of that, yeah. absolutely, and and many others, including Governor Thompson at the time, Tommy Thompson. Yeah. Uh, and 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 as I said, others. Um, uh, but that, that process is far from over, but to the point it's taken 30 years and now 40% of the kids in the city of Milwaukee do not go to a traditional public school. So there's an incredible infrastructure that is built here mm. that I hope is ready to, uh, take another giant leap forward with all that has gone on in the last year with, uh, the, the, the way that public schools have conducted themselves here and around the country.
1: Yes. This is a moment for school choice. There there has never been a greater moment for school choice in my lifetime.
2: I believe you're right. Yeah. I believe you're right. Um,
1: And just another observation, a lot of conservatism is about taking a Washington process legislation and moving it two degrees. Another two degrees. Oh, no, it comes back. Whereas a workable model, no matter how small is far more influence in the long run than just moving that Maginot line back a couple of meters in one direction in Washington. Because that yes. can go viral.
2: Yes, yes. All right, uh, well, quick, go ahead. I'm I sorry. just saying that's why we have our system of federalism. I, I, great stuff can happen and does happen at the local level and more often happens, starts at the local level and the state level uh, before Washington bucks it up.
1: But it doesn't work without... Um, local policy, and philanthropic entrepreneurs. Absolutely. Absolutely. There there is the potential to create local models under federalism, but somebody actually has to create them. Yes. Right? Um, And that's what you help fund. All right. Um, Instead of local models, national models, you were the ambassador to the Czech Republic, I think under W. Uh, Then I think Obama came along and said, thank you for your service. (laughs) Well, I
2: got fired on January 20th. (laughs) (laughs)
1: you were (laughs) were quick i mean that's early you know you apparently you were on some kind of short list Um, i was
2: gone by noon
1: (laughs) (laughs) so i'm i i I mean i'm very intrigued by the whole former warsaw pact eastern european emerging i'm intrigued as an investor but also as an observer so can you kind of give you know tucker went to hungary recently and a lot of the, the the twitter the twitter sphere went kind of not so over that. Can I just have your observation? Because there's a general tendency for Western Europe to say Eastern Europe is a whole bunch of fascists and anti-Semites and there's nothing good there. And that seems to me to be maybe a little unfair. Um, so you 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 serve there. I'd like a more balanced analysis of that region. Well,
2: it was, a, it was a wonderful experience for me and for our family. And the Czechs would call themselves Central Europeans, not Eastern Europeans. Fair and enough. They're, they're, they're fairly sensitive about that, but um, it's a small country of 10 million people. When you're there for almost three years, you you get a very good sense of the country. And uh, to to me, it was both in talking to people like Václav Havel, who was still alive at that time, at you know at very senior levels, but just as importantly, talking to village mayors and the person that drove my car when I was there. It they're. they're their love for what they saw in America, hmm. their appreciation for freedom, um, they remember the days, many in, in that society, when, when that country was not free, when, when they were part of the Soviet bloc. And, and they longed for the opportunity for a life that was, that was different than that. And w- we just take this for granted, and, and we shouldn't take it for granted. Um, And and it really hit home with me the the importance of our freedoms and the importance of the United States and the role that the United States plays in the world. Uh, People look to America uh, in in countries like the Czech Republic and Poland um, and and Slovakia and and surrounding countries there. Uh, So the United States has an important role. uh, And uh, while, while I worry a little bit about uh, younger generations in those countries because they don't remember those days. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would be very upbeat about um, the prospects in countries like that. Yes, they have steps forward and they have steps back, but you know, democracies are messy. And And I would say that the Czech Republic, based on my experience, is a, is a solid democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, there are problems but there always will be.
1: Well, and they are somewhat a different civilization from American civilization, right? I mean, there's a kind of Eastern Orthodox culture versus a Western, um, you know, maybe it has something to do with the filioque clause in the Nicene Creed. I don't know what it is, but they they do have more unitary societies rather than individualistic. But then again, there's lots of different ways to govern nations. Part of
2: history, yes.
1: Right, right, so... Um, I
2: think that I think many recoil at the at the notion of the European Union where you have sort of a nameless faceless bureaucracy in Brussels dictating to them what what they can and can't do and I, I think that bothers a lot of people in in countries like the Czech Republic probably more so than in in places like France um uh, it, it, it's interesting and I think it's for historic reasons that that they feel that way and
1: godless. I mean, I think that's a. I think that's a real part of these Central and Eastern European identities. No, no question in the
2: Czech Republic. Yeah, yeah right. Re, re, religion just does not play a, a central role in most people's lives. Hmm. Interesting.
1: Okay. Um, so, you're I, the last question. Unless there's something you want to add, the Philanthropy Roundtable Center, right? Um, donors. There have been attempts, both legal and illegal, to essentially expose donor lists, which we all know is really a false face for exposing conservative donor lists. You were hacked, but there have also been attempts legally, which so far the courts have been swatting down for, say, a state attorney general to release donor lists um, so that people can show up at your door and say, you're a, you're an election denier or a COVID, whatever, whatever they're trying to smear you with. It seems to me that if these donor lists get released to the public then the IRS and similar state-level organizations essentially become surveillance. You know, speaking of you know Central Europe, Eastern European you know, Stasi, they become almost surveillance agencies um, for the left.
2: Right. I mean, a donor privacy issue is is a massive issue. The one you talk. There's also an effort underway by. Uh, certain people in Washington to uh, revise the rules on donor advised funds and foundations, all all in an effort, I think, to deter funding, some of it from the right. Mm. Um, And I guess the round table's position and the round table has wonderful leadership and Elise Westhoff and and her team that are are resisting this at at every turn. And and, and the reasons are really very sound. This is the most generous country on earth. and, and actually, that became very clear to me uh, living overseas for the, for the years that we did, um, that it, it is just not part of the DNA of people in other countries to give up time and, and resources the way we do in this country. It's part of who we are. Uh, we give as much or more as almost any country in the world. Uh, why, why are we messing with this? Why... why we have to regulate and change and fix something that doesn't need fixing. Uh, people were concerned after COVID that, that giving would go down. In fact, it went up dramatically. That's the American people. So, uh, you know, specifically on the donor privacy issue, I, I think there are grave concerns that people are, are, are afraid that if some of this stuff becomes public that they're going to get harassed and you know what will happen then they just won't give the money
1: right and that's the idea because yeah. you you ask why let me att- attempt an answer because even a tiny minority of philanthropic dollars of foundation dollars going to right. the center right if 10% of it then that's just my guess the 10% of foundation dollars are going to our causes, just like Justin showing up at a meeting of 200, that 10% punches above its weight and it's a threat. And so it has, the spigot has to be shut off and they'll do it by intimidation.
2: Yes. Because they can't
1: have a debate because they can't win a debate.
2: Right. We've we've got to resist it at every turn. And again, this is one of the core institutions of this country. It's part of our culture. Yes. and, And it's something that we have to desperately fight to preserve because it's great. And it is great in what it can accomplish and has
1: accomplished. And uh, the Bradley Foundation has been in the middle of that. Uh, before I let you go, I've kept you a little longer than you agreed to, uh, uh, but if, is there anything else that you wanted to touch base on? At the end of every interview, I say, hey, is there something I should have asked you or something you wanted to talk about that I just didn't get to, to give you a chance to sign off on something that you want to say?
2: I'd say, you know, Jerry, I think we we covered covered just about everything. I think it's great. I enjoyed the conversation.
1: Me too. So I'll just sign off with thank you so much for the work of the Bradley Foundation. And um, and thank you for bringing attention to this issue of shareholder engagement. Conservatives have been slow, but we're pretty good at catching up once we become aware of a problem. And I think we're going to catch up pretty quickly.
2: Let's do it. Together. And thank
1: you all to listening to us here at Meeting of Minds podcast. I'm Jerry Boyer signing off. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts and improve our national conversation by sharing it with some friends.